You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. On this episode, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation and my co-host, Nicole Turner-Lee, will delve into what to expect from Biden's tech policy agenda in 2022. There's a lot to discuss on that front given the starts and stops of 2021 on various tech policy issues. So, Nicole, it's great to be with you. This is our reunion podcast since it's been a while since we've been on together, but I'm looking forward to our conversation. I know. I cannot believe this, Daryl. You and I on the same podcast after all this time. What a reunion, right? Exactly. So let's just jump right in. So 2022 is shaping up to be an eventful year, and tech policy is in the middle of many of our national conversations. President Biden has laid out an ambitious agenda on infrastructure investment, tech regulation, and antitrust policy, among other topics. He has nominated a number of tough-minded individuals to major administrative agencies and has signaled a strong stance on large tech platforms. So at the same time, Technology is playing a major role in governance and democracy problems. Some worry about the extent to which technology is fueling polarization and extremism and endangering the health of our American democracy. So let's jump right into the conversation on the topic of nominees. Yeah, I mean, Daryl, look... I, I don't know about you, but I like the way you frame it. These tough-minded individuals that Biden has nominated, particularly for the Federal Trade Commission, people like Lena Khan, right? We're seeing people in the Department of Justice. And most recently, you know, com- uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel, now Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel, has been formally committed to the FCC. Now, with that being the case, we're still seeing NTIA on hold. You know, they ran out of time with Alan Davidson, and we actually see a couple of more nominees in the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, as well as the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, up for grabs. So, you know, actually, I want to turn it to you first. What do you think we should be thinking about when we start seeing these types of nominations and these names put forth by the Biden-Harris administration? That's a great question. And of course, we know the old adage in government uh, affairs is that people is policy. And so I think (laughs) the fact that Biden has made several tough minded nominations to key regulatory positions, to me, that signals a strong stance on regulation and antitrust enforcement. We know that the political landscape uh, particularly in regard to the large tech platforms, has changed a lot in the last few years. Uh, there's been a major tech lash, a backlash against the tech sector where people are more skeptical. Uh, and this includes both liberals as well as conservatives, although they uh, sometimes disagree on the specific nature of the problem. Uh, but both political sides, I uh, think there are problems. So I think what Biden has done so far with his appointments is to signal, one, he's going to be tough. And two, he's going to be tougher than the Obama administration was in several areas. Uh, For example, on antitrust, I would expect more in-depth Department of Justice reviews on mergers and acquisitions. Uh, We know that a number of years ago, Facebook acquired WhatsApp and Instagram with very little administrative pushback. 
Uh, I don't think that's going to be the case with future acquisitions. And this is not just in regard to the tech sector. I think, you know, Biden already has complained that four companies dominate the meatpacking industry. And he argues there's a lack of competition there that is leading to higher food prices for consumers and therefore fueling inflation. And so I think, you know, this is just one example of how by appointing tougher people to these regulatory agencies, Biden is signaling that he's going to get much tougher, uh, both in the policy as well as in the regulatory space. You know, I think that that's right, right? Because I think that there is something to be said about the starkness of his nominees and his confirmations that these are folks that are really ready to pull up, you know, roll up their sleeves and get things done. But I would actually caution us, too. These are some of the same old people being recycled, right? So we've got to be a little concerned that we're not necessarily always getting fresh blood into these agencies, even though people like Lena Khan are not necessarily people who have been in government. Many of the folks have sort of the common ideology when it comes to that type of antitrust enforcement or tech is all bad or we need big regulatory policies to solve some of these problems. I just worry that as we look at the big issues that all of these agencies are going to take on when it comes to tech policy, that we don't get some of the same, some of the same old distribution of big dollars into big problems that leads to little impact or that we don't find ourselves stuck on some of the issues that many of these leaders may want to personally sort of drive forward, but may not be bipartisan enough or may not have the type of democratic support even to get past, you know, some of the uh, congressional members. That's just, just my fear, you know, who is up there that is going to bring some change because this innovative space is changing so quickly. We also need to make sure that these nominees and these confirmations understand just how fast innovation is over policy. You know what I mean? Yep. Now, all that makes great sense. So another top issue facing the administration is uh, the question of digital access. And Nicole, you have a new book coming out on the digital divide. Uh, and that's a topic that uh, is on everyone's uh, mind uh, right now. And I think one of the big successes of the Biden administration already has been the passage of a major infrastructure bill that includes billions to improve broadband speed as well as access. So as the administration moves to implement that infrastructure bill, what advice do you have on ways to close the digital divide? I know, right? Well, you know, Daryl, this is so hard because this book is coming out. I wish everybody would just read my book first, right? Because it probably has everything that they need, the holy grail. But it's not out yet. It'll be out soon, though. You know, listen, I have just put out a, an op-ed in The Hill regarding just the beginning thing that I think is really important is that people have to define what do we mean by the digital divide? It is so interesting that for years I felt like I was at the, the girl at the prom that nobody wanted to dance with. And now everybody wants to dance with people like me who have been concerned about digital access. And why is that the case? It's because the pandemic really showed and revealed just how much disconnection we had among people, particularly people who are on the wrong side of digital opportunities, but economic, social, political opportunities, which is really the thrust of my book. With that being the case, I do think, you know, with a large portion of this money going to the National Telecommunications and Informa Information Administration, NTIA, that Alan Davidson, you know, when confirmed, has a big task of defining what do we mean by the digital divide. And I think there's several ways to look at it, as I've outlined in that uh, op-ed in the Hill. One is, do we look at the digital divide as sort of a handout, where we actually come up with programs like digital literacy that bring people in, we deploy broadband all over the place and sort of not pay attention to the demand side of it? Do we give people broadband without educating them on the applications that are now defining society that are the only way that you can live, you can learn, you can earn, you can shop in this country? 
to me, it seems like having a clear goal of looking at the digital divide as one in which we want to close to maintain American competitiveness is very important to me. What that means is that we don't look at it as a hand out, but we look at it as a hand up. What needs to happen at the governmental level to assure that when we are actually putting out these programs and distributing money around infrastructure and digital literacy and equity, that we're ensuring that the people that we're giving it to become part of the fabric of our new digital ecosystem. So that's really important to me. And I think that having been a person in this space for about 25 years, I've seen the iterations of government with regards to this type of investment, you know, dating back to the American Recovery Act. And it's really important that we move away from programs, but to how do we make these part of the everyday behaviors that all Americans have privy to so that we ensure first-class digital citizenship. That's my first thing. I think also we need metrics and goals. Right now, you know, the Federal Communications Commission, the NTIA, are under steep and quick, urgent goals to get something done by this administration. But sometimes we need to slow down and figure out what those metrics are. And I think having that type of exercise will be very useful in ensuring that we're not spending that money haphazardly. I mean, listen, we don't even have a national broadband map. Do we know what areas need to be served first? And I think that's important for the administration to put as a priority the definition, the goals, and the metrics. And then I think the partnerships. Right now, there's a a presumption that the money will go to states. That's fine. But states may look at their, uh, you know, areas as large swaths of uh, problem solving. You know, let's just put all the money in one area or let's just figure out how to get the whole state connected. When really, I think that the stakeholders at the table need to be expanded. You think about everyone who is affected by the digital divide, workers, employers, students, teachers, seniors. What representatives are going to be at the table with their states to sort of come up with the right solutions to solve this? So I do believe the third thing that we should be thinking about in the distribution of these monies is who are the stakeholders that we're appealing to? Who are going to be the people that are going to allow us to have a sustainability model for these funds that have come, you know, in once in a lifetime have we seen this type of infusion of cash into broadband deployment as well as adoption activities and affordability, for that matter. But having the right people at the table, I think it's going to set the stage for whether or not we make a huge difference where it's sustainable and long-term for communities, or it's something that's short-term consisting of a variety of pilots and other programs that may not last beyond the investments. You know, that keeps me up at night, (laughs) Daryl, as you can see. I agree a hundred percent about the crucial importance of closing the digital divide because The pandemic has really revealed stark disparities in digital access to education, healthcare, remote work, e-commerce, and employment opportunity. Those without high-speed broadband cannot avail themselves of online education, telemedicine, working from home, and applying for jobs far away from where they currently live. And so all those barriers narrow their economic opportunities, their access to education and uh, medical care. And it's the reason why I think uh, Biden's infrastructure bill is really going to be one of the signature uh, pieces of legislation for the entire administration, because we do have uh, what I think is a once in a generation opportunity to close the digital divide. And as you note, you've been working on this uh, for a long time. We've tried that several times before, and oftentimes we have failed to do that. It's important to close that digital divide in order to move towards an inclusive economy. Uh, But you're also right. We have to get it right. Uh, And I think your points about the need for uh, metrics, goals, and 
uh, taking into account what the stakeholders uh, need uh, is an important uh, part of this. Yeah, no, and I, Darrell, if I can actually jump in there too. I mean, you and I have been talking about these kinds of issues, and I love the way you actually frame it, that are not just about, you know, government spending on a digital access activity, right, or on a particular type of technology. We're now looking at a country, a world, where the interconnectivity matters among your ability to just do basic stuff, right? And that's something that I think is so interesting, even in your research. We can't have automation in full speed unless we have everybody connected, right? We can't have people participating in parts of our democracy, whether for the good or the bad, unless we have everybody connected. So I'm just hoping, you know, Biden takes this not just as a charge to put up more supply or more demand for these services, but he sees a balanced approach in his governmental um, uh, vision, and he's able to bring not just the normal suspects, not just the normal candidates, not just the normal nominees, not just the normal agencies, but he's able to really bring his entire administration together to figure out how they make this a priority. Yep. Now, we definitely need to uh, make uh, progress there. So as we are speaking, of course, the big national as well as global issue is the return of COVID and Omicron and you know, we've all seen the numbers uh, rise dramatically, uh, both in the United States as well as around the world, uh, just in the last few weeks. And now that we are in the new year, uh, parents uh, are having to think about uh, their uh, children returning to school. And so uh, technology is a big part of this issue in the sense of uh, as we are thinking about the return to school, the question is, are we returning in person? Uh, New York City actually is keeping their schools open. Chicago is closing. Uh, Detroit is uh, closing for a little while. Of course, there's great uh, political contentiousness surrounding uh, all these uh, decisions. Newly elected governor of Virginia has argued uh, that that's not going to be an option for uh, students at all. Uh, I believe he favors the in-person uh, education. And Nicole, with the major challenges due to the COVID resurgence and the Omicron variant, how should schools be handling this reopening? How should they be approaching the digital disparities that we know have plagued the effectiveness of virtual learning for students and teachers? What can we be doing to help parents understand how to be more efficient in distance learning? You know, Daryl, that is my question. <laughs> you know, look, I, I live in Virginia and a little joke that's sort of uh peddling around a group of friends is the Virginia governor said, you know, by any means necessary, every student was going back to school. Well, guess what? Smomicron was not going to make that happen, right? We're now in the midst of a snowstorm. And now, you know, Fairfax County, where I live, the kids have been home for three days. You know, I think this has been really challenging, right? Because there is still that political taste, which is basically splitting people between whether or not they want their kids home, whether they want them in school, whether they not they want a mask, whether or not they want them vaccinated or not. And I think that's very uh, disruptive to the educational process for a variety of reasons. One, we've got the highest rates of mental health trauma that is going to happen among U.S. students. We also know that we have a shortage of teachers and substitutes and bus drivers that are plaguing uh, school districts, particularly large school districts that are trying to maintain some civility. We also have the challenge of social media. In the first few weeks of school last year, uh, I know our school district was plagued by a variety of TikTok challenges that come alongside, I think, the the permissive attitude that we have, that it's okay for young people to grab their father's gun and come to their school and act out violent rage. To me, those are big challenges. And they're challenges that are set amidst a virus that just won't go away, or some of the um, 
uh, medical practitioners have basically said and experts have said, it's a virus that we have to start living with. It's gone from pandemic to endemic. And they're probably right. It's almost like the flu. At some point, you have to do some self-management. But at other points, you have to be careful because it's affecting still every aspect of our lives, particularly our young people. With that being the case, I do think that it's important that we recognize a couple of failures on the part of us, our schools. First and foremost, we knew this was happening. We're now in the third phase of this. We keep having these conversations about return to school, whether or not we want to do virtual. And I'm sorry, we've done this three times already, folks, right? We started at the onset of the pandemic in March. We went back to it at the beginning of the school year. And here we are again having the same conversations. I think it is really important that we in some way capture some of the best practices of schools that have been effective around it, and even countries that still have their kids going to school, uh, whether it's because they do random testing, whether it's because they figured out how to do better teacher uh, development or professional development when it comes to distance learning, whether they've managed the expectations of their parents by keeping them in the loop as to effective ways to engage your child while online. I think here in this country, we've not done that. We keep being very reactive when it comes to the educational system. And I think that's very daunting because what it has done, it has placed our children at the heart of these very hard and critical decisions when it comes to their health and the health of their of their teachers. I think the second thing that we need to think about too is we keep pushing back against the fact that we don't want our kids online. When in reality, the world in which we live is actually dictated by digital access and digital resources and digital jobs. It's very important that we sit back. And this is something that I'm hoping that the Biden administration will do with some seriousness. Right now, I think all of the leaders in the space have been, again, reacting to the medical provisions as well as educational goals. But we need to come back and really think about, are we creating a populace that is going to be prepared to actually live and work in a digital economy? I remember when I was growing up, Daryl, and I'm not going to age you. I'm just going to age myself. Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm going to age myself. Do you remember back in the days when we had to take typing and other occupational classes to be able to be better suited? I certainly do. You remember that? mechanics and other things. I don't understand as we know that technology is sort of defining the lives of our students and defining the lives of their households and our workplaces, why we don't have that as an option in our classes, right? Why aren't we teaching our kids how to be better stewards and citizens of digital resources when we're not in crisis? (laughs) That way it makes it an easier transition. Why are we not speaking to our teachers on how to Uh, more effectively integrate professional development opportunities when it comes to the new digital classroom? Why are we not doing what I've been saying for the last 18 months, ensuring that no child is left offline ever again? To me, I just see this debate as we have these real tough questions, medical questions, societal questions, But we have some other questions that actually could be answered if we put our heads together in the educational community and the research community and figured out the best approaches to methodologies that work to get our kids up to speed with the 21st century. I mean, personally, I find this topic a really hard one because we really are trying to reconcile two competing goals. On the one hand, we want to keep students and teachers healthy in the middle of a pandemic. But we also need to make sure that education continues. And the issue is it's not just about education anymore because schools are playing very different roles in society. 
they are serving as daycare centers. They provide yes. free lunches. They provide health care. They're after school programs. They're a source of athletic competition between uh, different uh, schools and much more. So keeping schools open is important, not just to preserve the learning opportunities, but to make sure students get fed, parents can go to work, young people get medical care, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't envy school officials and parents who are having to make these decisions, but I think you're right. We may be in a situation where COVID never uh, fully goes away. We may have to deal with periodic surges. Hopefully they're not as big as the surge that we're going through uh, now, but uh, this may be something that we uh, need to learn to uh, live with. And I think you're exactly right. We need to get the technology much better than what we have uh, right now. Yeah. And I would, I would say, Daryl, on that, like, okay, one thing that our new governor in Virginia did get right, <laughs> I, I have to admit, is that I've been thinking about this model of like... Um, distributed learning. I don't know if you remember, I wrote about this like a year ago, that we had all these vacant properties in some of these communities now, that we could literally move classrooms to other buildings so that we're not concentrated in one hall or one, you know, uh, school building. We could actually take a school of 3,000 kids and maybe push 200 to other satellite places or locations where we put the same type of technology in, put the teachers in there, and we're able to control uh, the spread and, and actually have better metrics when it comes to infection rates. You know, part of what the Virginia governor is sort of suggesting are these pods, which many middle class families actually use, which I've been researching lately as to whether or not that's an effective model for how we should be looking at this return to school. Knowing that we're going to have sick kids, there is something to be said. I mean, Julie Wendis came out this weekend and said, hey, maybe we need to have people go back sooner, as the CDC has suggested, because we need more healthcare responders. But, you know, again, the unions have pushed back on that as a whole nother conversation for another podcast. But maybe there's something to, to, to say about creating safer spaces, which actually use the virtual tools so that these campuses can be very much connected to the main campus, while at the same time it offers options when there are sick kids that need to be quarantined, or there are younger kids who are more susceptible to the virus because they're immunocompromised, that they can learn differently. I just think that education, like many other institutions in our society, they don't want to change. <laughs> and not wanting to change, I think, is messing everybody up because we're trying to still put the square peg in the round hole and our society is so much different. So uh, Biden is moving to address other issues, including competition policy and antitrust policy. There have been complaints about large companies in several different sectors jacking up prices and contributing to inflation. So there clearly are problems in the tech sector, but Biden also has signaled a possible antitrust crackdown that goes beyond the technology sector. So from my standpoint, I think we clearly need to do much more to promote vigorous competition in many different sectors, because I think there has been a long-term consolidation of many industries. Uh, we have a number of sectors where there now are one, two, three, or four dominant providers uh, that can lead to higher prices for consumers. In fact, President Biden already suggested this is true in the food area, that one of the reasons food prices has gone up is not kind of normal market dynamics, but the fact that there are a small number of providers there and we don't have very vigorous competition. We also need to keep in mind how important it is to remove barriers for small and medium-sized businesses, because it's really hard to launch a new business these days, and small businesses always have been the bedrock both of innovation and job creation. You know, we have to keep in mind that these uh, multi-trillion dollar companies, uh, Apple, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, 
uh, in uh, Google uh, started in somebody's garage or in somebody's uh, dorm room. They were small businesses so that then grew to be a much uh, bigger. It's uh, long been estimated that small businesses provide two thirds of the new jobs that are uh, created uh, in this uh, country. So as we're thinking about competition policy, we need uh, policies that carefully review mergers and acquisitions. That doesn't take place now over the last several decades. It seems like virtually every uh, merger and acquisition gets approved by the Department of Justice. Occasionally, conditions get attached uh, to uh, some of the larger uh, ones. But uh, basically, we need to make sure large companies do not engage in predatory practices. Yeah, you know, I think you're right on. And I think that that's what the Biden administration is going to try to do, right? How do they crack down on this, you know, what has become very monstrous in terms of not just their effects in the market, but on democracy? I think that's going to be interesting, though, how they codify that, right? I mean, I don't know about you. I'm still trying to think about if they were to crack down in terms of antitrust and anti-competitive practices of some of these big tech companies, will it make a difference? I mean, Darren, do you think it's going to make a difference if they try to do something like that? Or are we going to find ourselves sort of finding these companies creating another arm or another way to actually skirt that, you know? Well, 100 years ago, when we actually did crack down on large uh, companies, in that case, uh, big oil and the railroads, uh, which were seen as stifling uh, innovation and raising uh, prices for agriculture, for uh, transportation and in the energy business, you know, there was a major uh, effort to uh, crack down uh, and you know, it did uh, lead to more competition. There were more companies. Uh, there was a sense there was a more level playing field. So I think it's important to remember the lessons of history. We are in an era of largeness uh, these days, and we do have to be mindful of the problems that that does create for consumers. Well, I, and I like that because I think given the supply shortages and other things that we've seen in terms of other industries, that's such a great point. We actually may see that go in that direction. So I think that's going to be a, a good pin to put into this administration in terms of not just tech policy, but policy overall when it comes to uh, commerce and you know goods and services. But, but Daryl, you know, I want to talk to you, though, about this whole antitrust piece and how that relates to a lot of things that you're interested in, which is political polarization. I mean, it is right now as we speak, just a few days away from the, um, let me go back, uh, as we, you know, Hams, I'm just going back. It is one of these cases where we're celebrating this horrific um, anniversary of the January 6th insurrection just a few days ago. And we're seeing that, you know, many of the noise that was created came from these platforms. When you think about large tech platforms bearing responsibility for this polarization and extremism in the United States, how should we approach tech in terms of their communications their governance and how they contribute to democracy? Well, polarization is not the fault of the large tech companies, but there are a number of ways in which the tech companies are fueling polarization and extremism. I mean, we see this clearly in the social media space where it's all about engaging the audience. And what the social media companies have found is things that engage audiences are things that make people angry. Uh, and so the algorithms sometimes have elevated angry content, inaccurate content. Uh, we've seen that in the political realm. We've seen that in the election uh, uh, world in terms of uh, the uh, big lie about uh, the stolen 2020 election. Uh, now in COVID, we're seeing a lot of false information disseminated that has had serious public health consequences. So I do worry about the tech role in political polarization. I do think that 
technology uh, leads to echo chambers. It uh, allows like-minded people, even if their views are marginal in regard to uh, the broader society, to find other people who also have marginal views. You know, it used to be that people interacted physically with one another in smaller, medium-sized communities, and it would be hard to find someone else who had really extreme views. With the internet uh, and with the world of social media, uh, people with extreme views are one click away. It's very easy to find those like-minded people, and it therefore creates a very toxic information ecosystem. There's a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation. It's a world where extremism has become a quite a prevalent, both on the right as well as on the left. So I do worry about that. Uh, that's an issue that keeps me awake at night, uh, kind of thinking about the dangers facing American democracy right now. And not all these problems are due to technology, but I do think technology has accentuated these problems and made it more difficult for our country to have civil debates over questions of national importance. No, I agree with you. I was speaking with someone over the weekend about how these uh, echo chambers actually create these you know, false truths that lend itself to you finding another friend who actually can confirm your false truth, which is part of the problem here, right? Because everybody can find whatever they want to justify their views or ideologies on the internet. Which brings me again back to this question, Darren, I'm going to push you on this. I just got something in the email about, you know, people are now trying to crack down and instead of policymakers sort of leading the charge. I just saw something today, a petition to just stop Facebook, you know? I mean, are we going to be able to see the type of uh, pressure from people and pressure from Congress really make some difference this year? I mean, are we going to see this actually happen, Daryl, go forward? Are we going to be back in the same place, you think? Well, the interesting thing is I'm starting to see people from different parts of the political spectrum come together around the idea that our social media ecosystem is too toxic. Uh, there are clear problems in this area. And I do think the political situation is ripe for possible changes in policy that would help address this uh, issue. So uh, one question is just, you know, the extent to which companies have legal liability for what appears on their platform. And we know, you know, for the last two decades, uh, the uh, large uh, platforms have been exempt from a legal liability uh, dating back to the 1996 uh, Communications Act. Uh, it was a new sector at that point. Nobody wanted to be overly harsh in the regulations that the government imposed on this. We wanted to see how the tech sector uh, developed. Well, it's now two decades later, and we see uh, the problems of what basically was a libertarian stance on the tech uh, sector. And so my view is we actually need to start to uh, create s uh, greater uh, liability for the tech companies for what appears on their site. I don't know that we need to necessarily eliminate all of the uh, freedom from uh, legal liability that they currently have, but we are starting to carve out some exceptions. So, for example, in the area of human trafficking, uh, Congress already has passed uh, legislation uh, that has created uh, some uh, liability for the tech companies in terms of things uh, that uh, happen on their side. You can imagine other areas. Uh, I'm starting to see more agreement between Republicans and Democrats on steps that would protect young children and uh, young girls who've been uh, the object of a lot of abuses uh, in this area. So I think politically, we're starting to get to the point where even people 
who differ on many different issues are starting to come together. And so we may start to see some uh, carve outs uh, in terms of this uh, almost complete absence of legal liability. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to pan out, but great points, really, you know, great points. So, Nicole, uh, the last issue that uh, I want to address is just this question of artificial intelligence uh, and how the new administration is going to uh, deal with that. And I think especially there are concerns, and you've uh, written widely on this, about algorithmic bias and civil rights uh, in regard to emerging uh, technologies, uh, questions about online uh, privacy. Do you think that this Congress and this administration will press forward on these issues in the coming months? You know, I hope so. I mean, if I was Cam Carey, who works with us over at CTI, I would, uh, you know, keep putting that tent even deeper into that hole there over by Capitol Hill to make sure people understand just how important it is to pass general privacy legislation. Listen, we need that as the core to how we address algorithmic bias without any privacy legislation with clear guardrails around civil rights protections and other protections that consumers need when it comes to the right to deletion or the appeal or whatever the case may be. We need to do something because right now we're sort of a wild, wild west with regards to these issues. I do think that this administration is actually going to take on artificial intelligence in a very unique way. We see them do it prior to the end of last year with the uh, rights-based framework that came out of the White House's Office of Science Technology Policy with Eric Lander and Alondra Nelson, where they're really talking about giving people rights to sort of decide how they want to access and use some AI products and services. I think we're also going to see a lot more research on the government side when it comes to artificial intelligence, particularly through some of the new initiatives that actually followed over from the Trump administration when it comes to coming up with really good data sets that are more inclusive and representative. I think with that being the case, you know, AI is going to be one of those areas, as we've already mentioned, there are so many other big issues for this administration. Daryl, I wrote a list, right? They got to push through in terms of, you know, the infrastructure bill. They've got to make sure sure that they strike this balance of tech and policy in schools. They've got to confront competition and antitrust policy, and they've got to address misinformation and disinformation. My hope is that they will see AI as one of those core pillars too, when we look at this new year and the remainder of this term. AI is actually at the root of many of these things, and it's going to continue to be part of this iteration of, you know, Internet 2.5 as we go forward, because we're finding that government is procuring AI, as you've written about, you know, individuals are not sure what's AI and what's not. And companies now are using AI to take people out to space and, you know, use, I, I just saw, Daryl, you would love this. I just saw trucks that are now using AI with driverless trucks. That's what I wanted to say that are using AI to make sure we actually meet the supply shortages. So I'm hoping that this administration is going to really take a hard look at this, but do it in a way that it's manageable. Because I think as all the other issues that we've spoken about, it can become its own big bowl. And that makes it even harder to unpack the type of policies that are going to help address it or make it more equitable among consumers. I mean, there certainly is a lot of interest in AI. And in our Turning Point uh, book, John Allen and I argue it is the transformative technology that uh, is driving innovation in a lot of different uh, sectors right now. And so I definitely expect uh, the Biden administration, as well as members of Congress, to provide more government investment in AI, uh, to uh, do more in terms of workforce development. We need to train the next generation of AI innovators. 
Uh, we need to get more AI and automation into the federal agencies so that the public sector is more efficient and effective in terms of what it does. But on this question of bias, I do think there is a big problem here, one with uh, the issue of bias itself, and then secondly, how we enforce uh, even current rules uh, against bias that we have right now. Because when you look at uh, past approaches, basically, you have to find a systematic bias and oftentimes, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, you know, set up a 20% threshold. Uh, so if there is more than a 20% difference in the outcomes based on race, uh, gender, uh, age, or other considerations in employment patterns, uh, lending decisions, and so on, uh, that can be taken as evidence of possible bias. But then the second part in a legal case is you also have to demonstrate the intent to discriminate, the intent to commit that bias. Now, with humans making decisions, you know, you can look at the person's emails, you can interview coworkers and see if there's evidence uh, that that person intended to discriminate. But if algorithms are making the lending decisions, if they're uh, being involved in, uh, in the employment area, how do you improve intent to discriminate via an algorithm? I think that is a big challenge as we're moving into a digital economy, how we redraft our, our laws and our policies for a new era where questions of intent loom large, uh, and it's harder to prove intent uh, when the decision is made by an algorithm. You know, Daryl, you are walking up my lane and you are actually joining hands with me. Because listen, one of the things that um, I have an article coming out uh, this year in an Oxford University Press book, which is talking about my new Energy Star rating, which I think will get at some of these issues where there's more disclosure that an algorithm is actually making the eligibility determination and what that looks like so that people have some rights or there's some type of feedback loop between companies and consumers and government to allow for, I think, what you're talking about, this distinction between differential treatment in terms of the algorithm optimized to my own character versus disparate impact. And then I also think to your point, I mean, look, I think at this point we need to do an analysis of our civil rights protections, not just the ones that we fought on the Woolworth counter, you know, around in terms of accommodation law, but we need to think about the inferential economy that is also making it even harder for us to detect these biases. So for those people listening, we're doing this work at CTI, Daryl, myself and my colleagues to try to see what we can contribute to this space, because I do believe the more opaque that these systems become, the harder it is for us to actually delineate between, you know, what what are good for consumers and what's not. And most importantly, you know, these companies are out there playing with fire with their reputational risk. And I think that it goes back to the heart of what you talked about with misinformation, the extent to which regulation may not actually be the only solution that we actually have to use public opinion to, in some ways, sway some of this behavior might also be another way to look at it. Well, it's clear to me 2022 is going to be an exciting year in terms of tech policy, uh, lots of issues on the agenda, lots of uh, problems that need to uh, be addressed. Uh, Nicole, it was great being uh, with you on the same podcast. I enjoyed our conversation and look forward to an exciting year. I know. We need to do this again. We got to do this again, boss. Listen, this podcast has been so exciting for people who are listening. We hope you're enjoying it as well in terms of all the topics that are coming forth and look out for the new episodes for this season. We hope to take on very tough issues because you know what we do at Tech Day, right, Daryl? We take these hard conversations and put them into palatable bites and bits so you're able to walk away and talk about it at the dining room, dining room table. 
So yeah, let's just, oh, and Daryl, before we forget, let's make sure people know if you want more of us, you can go to our Tech Tank uh, newsletter. It's available on the Brookings website, www.brookings.edu, where we go into more detail on many of the issues that we discussed and even more. Sounds great. Well, thank you for tuning in. And for more information, uh, check out our Tech Tank blog at brookings.edu. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.